Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Today is Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. We are in the midst of a lockdown due to the coronavirus. The whole world seems to have come to a bit of a standstill in order to limit the spread of the coronavirus. If you watch the news, you see all kinds of opinion being bandied about. Numbers based on models, projections being put forward. Online, you can find everything from conspiracy theorists all the way down to people who are panicked and people who are genuinely scared because they just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. The truth is, we have never known what tomorrow is going to bring. None of us have any promise that we'll even be here tomorrow. But this just brings that reality into stark relief. Everything seems to be in a state of flux. Everything is destined to change. When this shutdown began, none of us saw it coming, could imagine that our lives were going to be turned upside down the way that they have. Jobs lost, people not able to make mortgage payments, grocery store shelves being emptied of daily necessities. And we didn't see it coming. The day before, we thought everything was just fine. And so, in the midst of all this uncertainty, and panic, I ask myself, well, what is the best thing that I can do? How can I help? And it seems to me the best way that I can help is to continue turning people back to the unchanging Word of God. The Word of God has stood firm for thousands of years. And it's good to know, in the midst of all the panic, the chaos that's going on in the world, it's good to know that a sovereign God is still in charge. He did not fall off his throne. He knew this was coming. He's the God that is in charge of the good and the trouble that comes into this world. And so none of this surprised him, even though it surprised us. In this fleeting world, in this constantly changing world, in this world of upheaval and constantly changing opinion, which is all too often presented as though it is fact, it is good to know that there is something secure, something stable, something that you can count on. And that is the unchanging Word of God. It is true regardless. So many times I have said that the best definition of faith that I have ever heard is that faith is counting the Word of God 
as more true, more trustworthy than your circumstances. The circumstances of life will lie to you and will tell you that there is nothing that you can place your confidence in. But faith says there is something that is true, that is everlasting, that is unchanging, and that is the word of God because God himself is true and unchanging and everlasting. And so, here on a Wednesday afternoon, I stand in the empty GCA building, standing here at the pulpit where God has faithfully met me for coming up 19 years now. For many folks who listen to GCA's teaching, there's really no difference. It's still me standing in the same place, reading the same word of God, and then putting out MP3s that you all can listen to. Nothing's changed. But it is odd for me to stand here and have no one to speak to, no eyes to look into, nobody who will laugh, hopefully, in response to my jokes. But this is all part and parcel of the ever-changing world in which we live. And I am so very grateful that there is something in this world that is unchanging. The unchanging word of God deserves to be taught. It deserves to go out. And the people of God, the sheep of Jesus Christ, need to hear his word. We need to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and not just think that our life is bread alone or the circumstances of this life alone. It is only the word of God that is going to get us through these times of trouble, these times of tumult, and for many years, people have kind of chuckled when I have said, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And then people have kind of laughed and thought, oh, that's a, a truism, but it's not a truism that has a direct effect on our lives right here and now. Well, now we see life-changing now we see the results of storms. There are earthquakes going on in diverse places. Everybody around the world is feeling the effects of this COVID-19 shutdown. The world seems to be in a bit of turmoil. And it's just going to get worse. I remember that my friend John Riesinger years ago said, in talking about the events that are predicted in the Bible, he said that someday the world is going to get very dark. But then he said, and it's a glorious darkness. I like that phrase, glorious darkness. Because the darkness that's coming on the earth is all birth pangs for what's coming next. Even the darkness is a demonstration of the glory of God. So rest assured that everything that's happening right now is exactly what was meant to happen. Everything that's occurring right now was no surprise to God. In fact, it is the very plan of God 
at work in time demonstrating that no matter how high and mighty men might think they are, no matter how enamored we become with the idea of self-governance, it only takes something as small as a virus to start shutting us down. I've said for years, we're not the ones that are in control here, and I think that's being demonstrated yet again. This is all part of the glorious darkness. But just remember that an absolutely sovereign God is still in control of it. You can still hold your head up. You can still look up because the redemption of God is drawing near. With each day that passes, we are one day closer to the return of Christ. And when he returns, I think we need to be about the business that he has assigned to us. And so, on a Wednesday afternoon, I am standing at the pulpit of GCA, preaching into a microphone and speaking to a room full of empty chairs, but speaking God's eternal, unchanging words to a constantly changing world. And today, we are in Proverbs, starting at chapter 24. We have been reading the sayings, the adages of wise men. And this particular segment of the book of Proverbs is designated as 30 sayings of wise men. So let's start at Proverbs 24, verse 1. Even though we touched on it last week, it is sort of thematic to the whole of the book of Proverbs. It's so important, in fact, that it's mentioned three times just within these 30 sayings of wise men. We're told, do not be envious of evil men nor desire to be with them, because their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. In other words, when they're devising their evil, when they are scheming their plots in order to take advantage of the poor or to do damage to other people in order to increase themselves or accumulate wealth to themselves, their lips are going to demonstrate what's really going on in their heart. They talk of trouble, they talk of violence because violence is what's in their minds. In their minds, they devise violence because that's all they can do. Remember that this stands in contrast with everything that Solomon has been saying about wisdom. Wisdom leads to righteousness. Wisdom and righteousness go hand in hand because wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. So we who walk in the fear of the Lord... We who walk in the way of righteousness, the way that is correct and proper, we should not look on evil men. We should not look at the things they are doing and think that their lives look more attractive than our lives. 
We shouldn't be envious of the way they are or the way they think or the things that they might accumulate to themselves here in this life. They are still walking in a path that is contrary to the ways of God. And God being a judge is one day going to pay them back for the evil they have devised in this lifetime. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. Down at verse 19, you're going to see another reference to this exact same idea. Verse 19 says, do not fret because of evildoers. In other words, don't worry, don't be upset over the fact that evildoers do exist in this world. Knowing that God is a judge and that he is going to mete out his vengeance, that he's going to bring about an appropriate recompense, then the evil of this world is not something that righteous men ought to worry over, ought to fret over. And then again, don't be envious of the wicked. So don't worry over the wicked. God will handle them. Don't fret because of evildoers. And don't be envious of the wicked. Why? Because there is no future for the evil man. Now, last week we ran into this idea, a future. In chapter 23, verse 17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. And I said that this is a reference to an eternal reality. There are future promises that God has made for the righteous. This world, walking through this world, the evil of this world is not the end of the story. There is a heaven of righteousness. There is the glory of God that awaits us. That is the glorious future that we are anticipating. And in our anticipation of the future, we should recognize that that future also includes judgment for the evildoers. As a consequence, we should not envy the evildoers. We shouldn't envy the wicked just because it might look in this lifetime like they are gaining advantage, like, they're, like they are gaining wealth to themselves. And so it would be easy to say, well, the evil go unaccosted in this world they go unmolested as we sing. So why are they getting away with this? It's easy to become envious that they look to have easier lives, that they don't live by the restrictions that righteous men, God-fearing men live by. But if you remember the reality that there is a future, reality right here, right now is not the whole story. The story is going to play out according to the way that God has determined it. And that means in the future, the righteous are going to be rewarded and the wicked are going to be judged and judged most severely. So knowing all that, we don't worry. We don't fret because of evildoers. And we're not envious of the wicked 
because, as verse 20 says, there is no future for the evil man. He's not going to participate in the future glory, the future that is promised to the righteous, the future that we just read about in chapter 23, because there is a future. Instead, the only thing that the evil man has to look forward to is the certain righteous judgment of God and the outer darkness that is promised to people who die enemies of God. That future darkness is going to extinguish them completely, and the second half of verse 20 says, the lamp of the wicked will be put out. A lamp is a source of light. The lamp then indicates any future influence over other people, anything that other people could see or acknowledge of the wicked men, that is going to all be extinguished because there is no future promise of glory for the wicked. God is going to rightly judge. And that gives us the confidence in order to go forward in this world where we see the righteous forsaken, where we see the evil prospering, and it seems so very unfair to our natural eyes and our sense of fairness in this world. The reality is there is a future promise. There is a future hope for all those who are walking by the righteous ways of God. And that future is not promised to the wicked. And that is a reality that will carry us through these sometimes difficult life circumstances. So now we're back at chapter 24, verse 1. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. Verse 3 then says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now remember that this is an adage. This particular saying might be speaking about building an actual house, but it might also be speaking about building a lineage, a family, raising up children so that you're building your particular house, your particular lineage. In either case, it takes wisdom to do. It's not random. It's not something that's just going to occur. Nobody ever walked down the street and suddenly, by complete luck and happenstance, suddenly a beautiful house appeared. Instead, a house is built because somebody drew up a blueprint and then went and bought the necessary supplies and then went to work, put in the effort in order to actually build a house. That takes planning. That takes wisdom. I think what this saying is getting at is that the important things of this life don't just happen by luck and circumstance. They don't happen by laziness. You can't just wait for these things to occur. It takes wisdom. It takes thought. It takes planning. In a few minutes, Solomon is going to apply this same principle to going to war. 
and say that you can't just stumble into a war and think you're going to win it. It takes time to plan it, to have good counsel. And so wisdom becomes a source of might and strength for a nation. Wisdom is more than just knowing stuff. Wisdom is how you conduct your life. Wisdom is acknowledging God in all your ways. Wisdom is understanding, recognizing that without the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, all your plans in this lifetime are ultimately going to fail, are ultimately going to come to nothing. So as we read verse 3, by wisdom a house is built and by understanding it is established. It is set down firmly. I think that is applying to a whole lot more than just home building or architecture. I believe this adage is talking, as so many adages do. We use adages to this very day that aren't technically about what they seem to be about. Uh, the phrase that I thought of recently is, a stitch in time saves nine. In other words, if you've got a tear in a fabric, it's better to sew that fabric up right away, right now, with a single stitch, than to wait for it to continue to tear, and then you have to do more work. Then it takes nine stitches, because you didn't pay attention to it to begin with. Well, that's not ultimately about sewing. That's about doing what needs to be done right now while it needs to be done because you're going to save yourself more effort in the future because of your neglect. That's the way that adages, sayings work. So this adage out of Proverbs 24.3 about houses isn't just about building a house. It's about building a life. It's about the way that people walk out their lives. By wisdom, a house is built. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're planning, whatever your intention, whatever you're attempting to do, think about it. Apply wisdom. Understand what the point is of it. Why are you doing it? And that's the way that your plans will actually be established. They'll be firm. They'll have a foundation because you actually put some thought into it ahead of time. And the result is that your plans are going to come to fruition. I think that's what verse 4 is getting at. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. I don't think he's just talking about filling the rooms of your house with nice stuff. He's saying that in all your plans, those are going to be fruitful plans if you do it by understanding and by knowledge and by wisdom. Thinking about what you're doing, planning accordingly, is going to bring your plans to their natural fruition, and then they're going to be beneficial, be valuable, and be established. Verse 5 then. A wise man is strong. A man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war. And in abundance of counselors there is victory. Now Solomon has talked previously in this book about an abundance of counselors. It's good in gaining wisdom, in learning, in gaining knowledge. It's valuable. It's beneficial 
to listen to people who know things, to pay attention to people who have already accumulated wisdom and knowledge, in having people who can give you advice, wise counsel. Well, nowhere is that more true than when you're going to war. You can't just haphazardly wander into war. And remember, this is Solomon talking. He is the king of a city in the Middle East a few thousand years ago. He knows what it is to go to war. This is part of how he defended his city. This is how he kept peace with the kingdoms around him. Waging war was an essential part of what it is to be king. And he recognizes that you can't go to war without a plan. And it's necessary to listen to wise counsel. Listen to your generals. Listen to the people who have already been to war. Listen to what works and what doesn't work. Listen to any intelligence, any insight into your enemy and what their strengths and their weaknesses are. That's the only way to go into war expecting a good outcome, a positive outcome for yourself. As a consequence, in a war, it's not just the people doing the battle that are valuable. It's not just the physically strong men who can wield a sword that are the most valuable. The people who plan the attack, the people who plan the defense, those are also strong men in a war. That's what Solomon says. A wise man is strong. A man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance, you'll wage war. And in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. Now again, I don't think this adage is just talking about war. This adage is talking about life and the way you plan your life, the way that you conduct yourself here in this world. Sometimes walking through this world in a righteous way can feel like warfare because it is an unrighteous, God-hating world. So how are you going to do it? How are you going to conduct yourself? How are you going to get through the difficulties of this life? Well, it's going to take wisdom. It's going to take appropriate guidance. And so you need to listen to counselors. You need to listen to wise people who can give you good advice about how to get through this lifetime so that ultimately you gain the victory. You gain that future promise. Whatever the struggles are, whatever the difficulties are of this lifetime, it is good to have that wisdom up front, that plan up front, to have those counselors up front, to have that guidance so that you know how you ought to walk, how you ought to conduct yourself in a God-fearing way. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power, for by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Verse 7. Wisdom, that kind of wisdom of knowing how to conduct your life and how to walk righteously in this life, how to plan ahead, how to think about your plans and conduct them accordingly, that kind of wisdom, says verse 7, is too high for a fool. In other words, 
It's beyond his reach. It's beyond his grasp. He does not open his mouth in the gate. Last week we touched on this verse, and I said the gate is the gathering place for the wise men and the judges of a city. And so a fool who can't reach for actual good planning, good wisdom, he's not even going to speak among the wise counselors who are sitting at the gate because that's just beyond him. Look at chapter 23, verse 9. It says there, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. That's why he's a fool. He's not able to listen to wisdom. It's beyond him. It's beyond his grasp. He's not able to comprehend it because, as we already read, his mind is busy devising evil. His lips are talking of trouble. He's consumed with the foolishness of his evil. He's not able to hear the things of righteousness, of proper behavior. So as a consequence, don't speak in his hearing. He can't grasp it, and he's not going to have anything to say when he comes to the gate where the wise men are gathered. He's then described in verse 8. He who plans to do evil, men will call him a schemer. In other words, the evil that he does is not just haphazard. He's not just doing evil because he fell into it accidentally. He's doing this evil because he thought about it ahead of time and figured that it would be some advantage to himself. And so he schemes the evil and then he executes the evil. And so men are going to identify him as a schemer. He's somebody who is looking for the opportunity to take advantage of other people. This is not something that he's doing accidentally or haphazardly because he doesn't know any better. It's in his mind. It's in his heart. He devised the plan to do the evil that he's currently doing. And he's going to be called out as a schemer, as somebody who's doing the evil he has planned. So men are going to recognize him as somebody that you don't share wisdom with. But that kind of planning to do evil, that kind of scheming to do evil is sin. That's what verse 9 says. The devising of foolishness, the NASB says the devising of folly is sin. That kind of evil they're planning to do is sinfulness from its inception until its ultimate completion. And the scoffer is an abomination to men. That word scoffer is sometimes translated mocker. It's, it's mockery. A person who mocks the righteous way. A person who mocks people who are living according to honest behavior. They're going to devise schemes, evil schemes against the righteous men. And that is sin. And ultimately, men are going to recognize it, call it out for what it is. It is sin and it is an abomination to other people. It is a sin to mock 
righteousness. So here is the Bible declaring what the proper way is to walk out our lives, to walk by righteousness, to walk according to the fear of God, to walk according to the word of God. And as we walk through this God-hating world, people are going to mock us. People are going to make fun of us. I have quoted many times that I had a person say to me once, I don't understand why you think people ought to conform their lives and behavior to something that was written by some guy a few thousand years ago. That was his mockery of the word of God. And of course, it was obviously based on his own ignorance of the Bible, the very fact that he could call it some book that some guy wrote demonstrates that he knew nothing about the Bible, but even his ignorance of the Bible, what's in it or how it works, did not stop his desire to mock it. Why? Because mockery is part of them. It's built in. It's in their heart. It's in their head. They are going to mock righteous things, proper things, the word of God and the people who live by the word of God. Jesus himself said, when the world hates you, remember it hated me first. But it is going to hate you. The God-hating world is going to hate you because you represent God on the planet. You're like a big blinking neon sign that says there is a truth, there is a future, there is righteousness, there is a God, there is a Christ, there is a standard, there are proper morals and the God-hating evil people of this world are going to hate all of that. And so they're going to hate you for bringing that to their attention. The devising of foolishness is sin. And the mocker, the scoffer, is an abomination to men. Now verse 10 comes about at a very fortuitous and providential moment. Throughout the Bible, we read this phrase, the day of distress, or a time of trouble, or a day of trouble. It identifies that every trouble that comes your way, every trouble that occurs here on the planet, is on schedule. God has already planned it. God has already scheduled it, and it has a particular day when it's going to occur. We are all walking out our lives and the occurrences of our lives are all on God's calendar. He knows what's coming and what's going to happen. A day of distress pretty accurately describes the day and time in which we live right now. Troubles are happening in the world, a wide variety of troubles. And yet that doesn't mean that God has forgotten us or abandoned us. God is still on his throne doing whatever pleases him, and he is bringing about these times of distress, these times of trouble. So then, how should we react to these times of trouble? Should we just sit back and try to wait them out? Should we just be lazy through them? Should we just be, as the NASB says, should we just be slack through them? Well, verse 10 says, if you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. In other words, the strength that comes about as a result of 
wisdom, intelligence, knowledge, the gaining of the proper understanding of the world and how it works, and God's sovereign control over all things, you're not going to have that kind of strength if you are slack in the day of trouble. In other words, your slackness demonstrates what's inside you. Your laziness, your foolishness demonstrates what's inside you. And what is inside you is a lack of understanding, a lack of strength. Remember that earlier Solomon already drew this comparison for us. A wise man is strong. A man of knowledge increases power. So then the best way to demonstrate that you have no strength, that your strength is actually limited, is to be lazy, is to show slackness in the day of distress. When trouble comes, when difficulties come, what do you do? Do you continue walking out your life in the way that God has prescribed for you? Do you continue walking in trust, faith, wisdom? Or do you let those things slip? Do you become lazy? Do you become slack in the things that you know are required of you? Do you become slack when the trouble comes? Or do you face the troubles and the difficulties of this life and face them with full knowledge that God in his sovereignty is still in control and that you're going to get through this because God becomes your strength, your shield? Don't become slack in the things that you know, in the things that you believe, in the things that the Bible has taught you. Don't let those things slip just because your circumstances have changed. Your circumstances have changed according to what God has determined. So therefore, your trust and confidence in God should remain intact rather than becoming lazy or letting them slip just because there's a time of trouble, a day of distress. Show that you are strong in the Lord. Don't let your strength decrease in times of trouble. Rather, let your trust in God, your strength in the knowledge of God, increase as you see the times of trouble approaching. In other words, during our comfortable days, during our secure days, during our days of plenty, that's when we've been learning, that's when we've been understanding what the Bible says about God and our relationship to him. We have been acquiring that knowledge and doing it in relative comfort, relative ease. So those things that we have learned ought to have properly prepared us for the times of trouble that are coming. Now that times of trouble are here, don't become weak in your faith. Rather, maintain your faith in the things that you've already learned, in the things that you already know. Here, I'll make it easier. Let me break it down for you. It's easy to say, God is sovereign over my life when everything is going well. Bluebird of happiness, rainbows, kumbaya, everything's going good. Well, then it's easy to say, God is my pilot. God is in control of my life. After all, look how good I've got it. Look how well he has taken care of me. 
I don't have any sickness, I have money in the bank, there's food in the fridge, my kids are all better looking than everyone else's children, they can run faster and jump higher, everything in my life is good and I give God the credit. That's easy to do when things are good. The test is, the trial is, when the difficulties come, then what are you going to do? Are you strong still? Or is the day of trouble going to demonstrate that you were never really strong in the Lord, that you were never really depending on him, and that your faith was never firmly planted in his sovereign will? We accept good at God's hand. We should also accept trouble, Job says to his wife. The Bible teaches us in a few different places that the confidence that we have in God during the good times is the same confidence that we have to have in God during the difficulties. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Verse 11 can be kind of a confusing verse, and a few of the commentaries that I've read are equally confusing on this verse. I think the only way to understand this verse is to view it from the standpoint of the people who are being taken away to death in this verse are people who are being persecuted, who don't deserve the death they are walking toward. Because the verse reads, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. The phrase staggering to slaughter seems to mean that they're so poor, so wretched, so underfed, so badly taken care of, that even as they're being taken away to their death, to their slaughtering, that they are barely capable of walking. They are staggering to their ultimate death. And the phrase is, oh, hold back. In other words, defend those, deliver those, keep back from allowing the death of those who simply don't deserve it just because they are poor, because they have no political power, because there's nothing they can do about the wealthy, the powerful, oppressing them and oppressing them all the way to death. So stand up for them. Take their side. Now, all too often, rather than stand up for what is right, people think that they can rely on the excuse, well, I just didn't know that was happening. I didn't know that was going on. I didn't know that the poor people were being oppressed to that degree. I'm not responsible. Well, that's what verse 12 says. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? In other words, God knows, God sees. God knows those who are being oppressed, those who are staggering toward their slaughter. And if you have the ability to intervene, if you have the ability to help, if you have the ability and you don't do it under the excuse of, well, I didn't know any better, or I didn't recognize that was going on, when in fact you really did know, you're just saying it as an excuse in order to justify yourself. 
Well, God knows. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? So in other words, you're not fooling God. God knows what you have seen. God knows what you have experienced. God knows whether you have the ability to help. And justifying yourself, excusing yourself, trying to claim, well, I didn't know about it, when in fact you did know about it. God knows you knew about it because he's the one who weighs out your heart, your intention. He's the one who's keeping your soul. And he's the one who is ultimately going to reward or judge. So I think we can put all these ideas together. Right from verse 10, if you're slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. But deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? I think when we put that all together, what this adage is telling us is, in this world, there are going to be opportunities to do the right thing. Don't excuse yourself. Don't justify yourself because God knows it's the right thing to do. And in fact, he brought that across your path on purpose. It's always best then to react to the circumstances of this life in a righteous way, in a generous way, in a kind way, in an appropriate way, in a way that glorifies God because ultimately he who sees and knows everything is going to reward you accordingly. That's even a New Testament concept when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to sit in judgment against the evil, but he's also going to reward the righteous. So not only should we walk in integrity, not only should we walk according to the righteous knowledge and wisdom that we have accumulated in this life and that the word of God has taught us, not only should we walk properly because God has told us to, but there are also appropriate rewards long-term future things that we can look forward to because we walked out this life according to the word of God. And there is going to be judgment or loss. That's what Paul describes. If what we have built on the foundation that Paul has laid, if it turns out to be wood, hay, or stubble, we're still going to be saved, but we're going to suffer loss. So Old Testament or New Testament, we're being told the same thing, which is don't excuse yourself. Do the next right thing. God who watches is considering it, and he's going to judge accordingly. He's going to render to men according to their behavior, according to how they walked out this lifetime. So just to be clear, I don't think we're talking about salvation issues here, but we certainly are talking about how we behave ourselves once we have aligned ourselves with God in Christ. 
if we say that we believe in God and we are in Christ and yet there's no difference between us and the world, we're kidding ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. Don't excuse yourself. Walk according to the knowledge of God's word and live appropriately. Verse 13 then, my son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Now Solomon is not just talking about honey or eating things that taste good to you because verse 14 continues the thought, know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. There is Solomon once again making reference to this glorious future, this glorious hope that will not be cut off. That promise of a glorious future will not be taken away from you. So the comparison is, eat honey because it's good, good for you apparently, Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste, so it's enjoyable. Eat honey because it's enjoyable, and the only reason that Solomon brought up the honey is to say that wisdom is like that for your soul. Wisdom nourishes your soul. Wisdom is sweet to your soul. Just like honey tastes good in your mouth, wisdom is good in your soul. Because if you find it, if you find wisdom, that I will say again, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, with the reverence of God. If you find wisdom, if you accumulate wisdom in your life, then there is this future to look forward to. There is this promised, blessed, glorious future. Despite your circumstances now, there is this hope that's held out in front of you, a hope that is not going to be cut off. So we who walk righteously, we who walk after the word, we who walk out our lives according to the wisdom of God, we have this promise from God that is never going to be extinguished, this promise of this glorious future. And so the same way that honey tastes sweet and is good for you, wisdom is sweet and is good for you. And it ultimately results in being part of that glorious future. I think being part of the glorious future is much better than having, if you'll excuse me, your best life now. I think I'm willing to exchange my best life right now for part of that glorious future. In verse 15, then, Solomon returns to advice that he's giving to wicked men. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in the time of calamity. Let's take that last line first. It's clear that God has intended that the wicked are not going to remain. The wicked are not going to always continue in their wickedness. And when calamity comes, when trouble comes, they're going to stumble. They're going to fall. 
by contrast, a righteous man can never be ultimately tripped up. A righteous man who falls even up to seven times, he is going to rise again. Now let me remind you that this is an adage. It has a larger meaning than just talking about two men, one wicked, one righteous. And it's not just about that one wicked man hurting that one righteous man. There's no guarantee if the wicked man were to seriously damage the righteous man that the righteous man is just going to pop up seven more times. I think instead what this saying is getting at is that righteousness always rises again. Here, I'll put it simply. That is the history of the church from its inception for the last 2,000 years. It has suffered violence. The violent take it by force. The God-hating world has tried to suppress the church. And yet, no amount of oppression, violence, killing, no amount of trying to suppress righteousness has been able to keep righteousness down. Instead, God continues through his people to demonstrate the everlasting value of God's word, of righteousness on the planet, and of he himself on his throne. You can't suppress the truth ultimately. Try as they will, the world will attempt to hold down righteousness, the wicked man is going to come against the dwelling of the righteous, the state might even come against the church collectively, they might even attempt to destroy the resting place of the righteous. But even though the righteous man falls, let's say that he falls by a wicked suppression of the truth, nevertheless, you can't keep righteousness down. Ultimately, the church is going to rise. Ultimately, righteousness on the planet exists. And darkness cannot extinguish the real light. So whether we're talking about practical advice to wicked people, do not lie and wait, a wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Don't plot evil schemes against the houses of the righteous. Do not destroy their resting place. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in the time of calamity. So what's that verse really saying? You're never really going to be able to stamp out righteousness. And wickedness stumbles at the first calamity and stays down because righteousness the righteousness of God is ultimately going to judge the wickedness of the evil. You cannot stamp out righteousness. Verse 17 then. If you are among the righteous, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Remember we just read that the wicked, the enemies of righteousness, are going to fall. They are going to stumble in the time of calamity. But then what should our reaction be? Should we celebrate their fall? Should we rejoice because they fell? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. And he turn away his anger 
from your enemy, the one who stumbled. Even God, in the book of Ezekiel, I do believe, he said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Unrighteous people falling because of their wickedness, falling because of their unrighteousness, are falling under the judgment of God, and God is going to mete out an appropriate and awful judgment. That is not something that the people of God ought to celebrate. We're not supposed to be rejoicing over the fact that the wicked have finally gotten their due because it's an awful thing. It's a terrible thing to fall under the judgment of God. So do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And that tells you something important about the attitude of the heart of righteous, spirit-filled people. If we are going to take pleasure in anything, if we're going to rejoice, we ought to rejoice when men come to God, when men come to wisdom, when people come to understand the realities of this life. That's something worth rejoicing over. But as we see men stumble and fall, as we see people fall under the righteous judgment of God, that's not a time for celebrating. Even Jesus said that you're to love your enemies. What kind of demonstration of actual God-given love is it if you're dancing on the grave of your enemies when they fall? Rather, leave judgment, leave vengeance to God. Our job is to worship God for who he is, even as he is meeting out that judgment, but not to rejoice in it, not to celebrate in it, because the reality is that's also what we deserve. It is only grace, it is only kindness that God isn't also judging us. So we don't celebrate, we don't rejoice, because that's another way of saying, you got yours because you deserve it, but look at me, I didn't get that kind of judgment because I deserve better, because I'm just better than you. The reality is, you're just like the people who fell under judgment, and the very fact that you didn't receive that judgment can only be an act of grace. Therefore, since it is grace, it can't be something that you deserved, Therefore, when somebody else, even your enemy, falls under God's righteous judgment, that is not a cause for celebration. Celebrate instead the grace, the goodness, the long-suffering of God, the knowledge of God that led you to a place of reconciliation between you and God. That's something to celebrate. When people understand the gospel, the lights go on, everybody's home. When people have a comprehension of this world and how it really works, when people go from expecting darkness and calamity to understanding the future hope and the glorious future that awaits them, yes, celebrate, even angels in heaven celebrate under those circumstances. But when God is meeting out judgment, when one of your enemies falls... That's not the time to rejoice. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, 
Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Verse 19, do not fret, do not worry, fret not because of evildoers and don't be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil man, the lamp of the wicked will be put out. We've already looked at that verse. So verse 21 then, my son, fear the Lord and the king. That word, as I keep saying, means to reverence. It's not a matter of slavish fear, like you're constantly afraid that they're going to get you, they're going to harm you, they're going to exercise their great power against you. Instead, what it means is, God and the king deserve appropriate reverence because of the station they hold. So my son, fear the Lord and the king, and as part of that appropriate reverence, do not associate with those who are given to change. Don't associate with those who appear to be loyal today and then tomorrow are disloyal. People who are as unstable as water. You know that people like that, when you turn your back, are going to talk against you or might even stab you in the back. These are people who are subject to every wind of doctrine. These are people who can't be counted on in time of crisis or trouble. And when you're looking at them or when they're standing before the king, they may swear great loyalty or they may even be in your church pretending to be loyal to God. But when a time of trouble comes, they're going to demonstrate where their loyalties really are, and their loyalties are going to be to themselves, to saving their own skin, to putting themselves first, and not having proper reverence for God and the king. My son Fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly. God is going to judge them. Trouble is going to come into their life. Calamity is going to overflow them because of their disloyalty. And who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. In other words, calamity, trouble, ruin comes from God and also comes from the king. And who knows, if the king is angry, what kind of calamity and ruin might be brought to the disloyal person. And that's why it's important in Solomon's mind that he would say, my son, don't associate with those who were given to this kind of double-mindedness because you don't know what the outcome's going to be. God and the king can bring ruin and calamity to them, and it's going to happen suddenly. So don't associate with them. Don't be part of them. And then verse 23 starts, these are also the sayings of the wise. So we have just read the 30 sayings of the wise that make up that section of the book of Proverbs. Next week, we'll pick up at verse 23, where we're then going to read some more sayings of the wise. But for the moment, if you come away with nothing else, I hope you understand 
the enormous contrast that Solomon is building for us between those who are righteous, who walk in the ways of righteousness, who walk in the fear and the reverence of God, and those who are evil, who are wicked, they are ultimately going to fall. They are going to come to calamity. And whether that calamity is at the hands of the ruling authorities here on the planet, like the king, or whether that calamity is at the hands of God, that calamity is sure and certain. That time of trouble is going to come on them suddenly. Meanwhile, we who walk in righteousness, we who walk after the course of God and his word, we have hope for a future, a glorious future, a looking forward to all the things that God has promised us. And that promise and that hope that we have is never going to be extinguished. It's never going to be cut off. It's never going to be taken away from us. So the contrast just couldn't be bigger. And don't let the circumstances of this life cause you to become double-minded, to rethink. Instead, the same consciousness of God, the same continuity of God, the same devotion to God that we carried when things were going well, when times were easy, when we were at comfort, that same devotion and all those things that we learned during those times, those are all just as true during the times of difficulty and calamity and during times just like the times that we are living right now. God is still on his throne. And by the way, he told you that times of trouble, difficulty, calamity, pestilence, earthquakes, wars, rumors of war. He told you all these things were coming and he told you in advance so that you could prepare. And hence my phrase, cheer up saints, it's going to get worse. Now that it is becoming worse, you ought to carry with you all the things that you've learned, all the things that you've understood from the Bible. God has not changed. He has not been altered one little bit, still sitting on his throne, doing whatever pleases him. Therefore, we ought to worship him, acknowledge him. We ought to be in reverence toward him, regardless of the circumstances. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again, and yet again, we saw it here in the book of Proverbs. Now, typically, at this point in any given sermon, I would look out at the people who have been listening, and I would ask them, do you have any questions? Fortunately, I'm in an empty room, so I'm doubting there are going to be any questions. But I do look forward because God is indeed faithful, I look forward to the day when this building will again be filled with the saints of God. And we will again raise our prayers to God collectively and corporately. We will sing praises to God, lifting our voices to the rafters and singing about the wonderful works of our God who takes us through times of plenty and times of trouble, and yet is faithful in every circumstance of this life. I hope you, who are within the sound of my voice, have been encouraged by what you've heard here, and I hope that you, too, are looking forward to that glorious future that awaits us.
one of the favorite things that I ever heard anybody say to me was he said, if I don't ever get to see you again in this lifetime, I'll look for you around the throne. That's a nice sentiment. That's a nice thought. Someday, we're not just all going to be gathered here at GCA, but someday we're going to be gathered together around the throne of God. That hope, that promise, that anticipation should be enough to help us as we encounter the troubles, the struggles, the trials of this life. One day, even though we're scattered right now, God has a history of scattering his people, and yet he has promised Israel a glorious future when he's going to gather them again back to their land. Christ is their king. There is a glorious future awaiting Israel. There is a glorious future awaiting the church of Jesus Christ. And this scattering of the church that's happening right now is completely under the hand of God and it changes nothing about the glorious future he has promised us. And he's demonstrated that, that this is how he deals with his people and always has through all of past history and will in the future. He scatters, he gives faith, he reunites. Even though we fall down seven times, we're going to stand up again because that's how righteousness works. All the praise, all the glory, all the honor, all the worship belongs to a God who is doing that. Our God, the one who promises us a glorious future. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.